0: Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard.
1: Hello, world. Welcome to Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. We're being broadcast right across the world from Hollywood Boulevard in Hollywood, California. And this is where technology meets entertainment. There's less than a week before Christmas and Hanukkah. So I would like to take this opportunity to wish everybody who listens to this program and everyone who reads my daily newsletter and, of course, everybody else, a very happy festive season with your family. But we've got to make sure that we don't forget what this time is all about, the spirit of giving You know, and if you can help somebody less fortunate, please do so. My wish for 2017 is that we all look out for and do whatever we can to assist and give support to those around us. And I hope that our new government will be very generous to people who are a little different than the norm we should be encouraging differences and encouraging the arts and I hope that uh, the incoming government does that. Today, I saw a great piece by Jim Weber of Weber PPC who said, as somebody who's worked in the media for 15 years, I've always been amazed at how outdated and ineffective the advertising uh, business is. And I've incorporated... Parts of Jim's piece in my comments tonight because anybody who's listened to me, um, any one of my presentations or read a blog or a newsletter of mine or bought one of my books in the past 15 years has heard my sermon about what a huge waste of money TV advertising is. Two decades ago, the CEO of Chiat Day, which is a major advertising agency, who does advertising for a living, said on the front page of Time magazine that 95% of all media advertising does not work. Yet, annual TV advertising has grown to an extraordinary $80 billion industry. Yet, when I'm out giving a presentation, I've got an auditorium of a 1,000 marketing people and I asked them to put up their hand if they think that 25% of their advertising works, you'd think that I'd just ask them how many of them would like to be waterboarded. Seriously, you get about 10 hands. Advertising execs do not think 25% plus of their advertising works. So let's have a look at why it doesn't work. Firstly, We skip ads like we've never, ever done it before. Nobody wants to watch commercials except for the Super Bowl, and it's never been easier to avoid them. Just switch the channel or fast-forwarding through them to DVR. I know that when I'm watching football at the weekend, as soon as the ads come on, click, click, I'm off at another game, and then... When the ad comes on there, I'm back off again. Only about one American in every seven watches primetime TV. But unless you accidentally catch the start of a Geico or a Carl's Jr. ad, then you don't watch them. Secondly, you know, when any ads, probably including Geico and Carl's Jr., come on, we still don't watch them. Research shows for the third ad in a commercial break, only about 12% of the viewers of the program watch the ads. You go for a bathroom break or a snack, you put the kids to bed. So usually, you check your phones. If it's younger, they check their phones or their computer. According to Adweek, in 2015, 87% of consumers use second screen devices while watching TV, particularly during the ads. Thirdly, brands can't calculate the ROI of TV ads and never have. Well, actually, they can, but they don't. Now, this is a statistic that should get every marketing and advertising manager fired. 90% of marketers can't accurately calculate a return on investment on advertising. Now, they actually can. They just choose not to. And the formula is really simple. Return on investment is your net profit from your investment divided by the cost of the investment by 100. So that's really simple. Now, they'll argue that it's difficult to measure the net profit from a TV commercial if an ad for 1-800-Flowers runs a week before Valentine's Day and sales go up 500%. Is that 500% increase because of the advertising or it's because the week of Valentine's Day every bastard and their dog goes out and buys flowers. But if the advertising agencies and their advertisers did a bit of research they could find that out easy or pretty bloody close. Then they'd be able to know the return on investment they were getting and most of them would be looking for a new profession. And fourthly Correlation does not imply causation. Now, since ROI for TV ads takes effort and would cause gross embarrassment, brands settle for the correlation of sales increasing when they air TV ads. They say that TV ads work because many companies saw TV spend and revenues go up at the same time. However, Just because sales increase when ads increase doesn't mean that the latter is causing the former. Did revenues go up because TV ads went up or did TV ads go up because the companies had more money to spend on ads? Maybe these companies had something new to sell or some other reason which resulted in this boost of revenue. It's a guess. And finally, Only 5% of advertisers, start again, only 5% of viewers can tell which ads are for which products. The number of times I watch an ad and then stop and five seconds later say, What the hell was that ad for? And I can never remember. Or I might vaguely remember the company, uh, the the product, but not the company. So people are on TV ads hoping that sometime in the future, the ad will trigger in the brain, and you'll go and buy the product. How ex- except how often do we even associate ads with a company behind them? More frequently than not, people will mistakenly guess a competitor instead of the actual advertiser. So not only did the company lose and waste millions of dollars on the ads, but they also gave their competitor – Free advertising. There's got to be a problem with that. Now, despite all those obvious flaws, why do companies still waste billions of dollars every year on TV ads? And like most wasteful practices, the answer is very simple. Because that's how we've always done it. Mm. that's what legacy companies say just as they are falling through the floor being whipped by a new digital company and you better believe brands' respective advertising agencies aren't going to confess anytime soon that TV ads are a great giant waste of money stop paying us all that money for ads that ain't going to happen anytime soon so please television advertisers take a hint Start investing your advertising dollars elsewhere, both for our sake and most of all, for your sake. Now, to receive all of Jim Weber's LinkedIn posts about digital media, sign up for Jim's weekly digital media newsletter. So that's Jim Weber, J I M W E B E R. Now, I love this quote. I'm big on quotes. If you get my daily uh, newsletter, business newsletter, which takes just 30 seconds to read. 81,000 people get it. I use a quote every day, and I found this one by Groucho Marx, who said, I find television very educational. Every time somebody turns on the set, I go into the other room and read a book. I think that's a great quote, pretty accurate too. So, in the true spirit of Christmas, Young entrepreneur Griffin Vans gives his customers, the less fortunate and the earth, a wonderful gift through his brilliant buy something new, give back something old, clothing policy. Griffin Vans in Boston has come up with a brilliant idea. That's not only great for business, it's fantastic for the environment. When you buy something new from his Eon Row clothing line, You give back something old. How easy is that? So you buy a new sweater. So when I buy some, I bought a couple of new pairs of track pants. So the first thing I do is go to my wardrobe, find two old pairs of track pants, throw them out, replace them with the new ones. And I'm sure a lot of people do that. So when you go in, buy a new sweater, you go to your wardrobe and um, find an old sweater and hoik it. Well, so... What if you got a 15% cash reward for doing that? Now, launched just four months ago, the company offers a line of women's clothes, and the returned pieces, no matter where they came from, are recycled and turned into something new. Aonro makes all its products out of 95% to 100% recycled material. Now, Griffin's goal is to get people involved in the process of recycling, both to raise awareness about the environmental cost of clothing waste and to help people from having their closets overflowing. Griffin says that waste is a huge problem. The average American throws out 70 pounds of good clothing every year. And only 15% of that is recycled. The rest ends up in landfills where it decomposes, releasing greenhouse gases that contribute to global warming. But Aaron Rose customers see the problems that exist with the environment and they want solutions that they can make a difference with. They want to reward them for doing the right thing. So if the returned item is made from an easy to recycle fabric like the cotton T-shirt, Aaron Rowe has turned it into new fabric. Clothing that can't be easily recycled is converted into insulation or car seat filling or something like that. If the old clothes are still in good wearable condition, Aaron Rowe has it distributed to local charities who serve people in need. Now, Aaron Rowe joins other companies that are trying to close the loop by making new clothes out of existing recycled or used materials. For example, retail giant H&M, Big English Group, has an in-store collection program that lets customers bring in clothes to be recycled. And Nike says 71% of its footwear contains materials made from waste from its manufacturing process. Most everyday fashion in the United States is now so cheap. Clothing in America is ridiculously cheap when compared with pretty much everywhere else in the world. So while Griffin, Aaron Rowe and others may be facing an uphill battle against the massive clothing companies that constantly turn out very hip styles at really, really low prices, they're helping raise awareness of these issues. And over time, they may actually make a dent in the environmental impact of our shopping habits. Let's hope so. So do you get my daily 30-second read business newsletter? You can read it in 30 seconds apart from the occasional. I think in the last three months, we might have had two that take about three minutes to read, and in each case, I've told you right at the start that this is a three-minute read, but we're getting a heap of subscribers every day. More and more people are subscribing every day, and the occasional unsubscribe, that's all right, because it's interesting and it's varied and it's business information that you can read very quickly. So you can just click on it in the morning. Thirty seconds later, you've got some great information that you can now talk around the water cooler, or you can tell your girlfriend on the phone, or you can talk about it with your boss at lunch, and he'll think you're a lot smarter than you really are. <laughs> so I invite you to go to my news, uh, my website, which is Bob. Pritchard.com and enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read and we'll keep you up to date with all the business news that is important. Now, how often in business do you have to deal with difficult people that are an absolute pain in the ass and obnoxious? And most of us are not equipped to do this without you know, all sorts of trauma and drama and upset and there's situations which do not get the desired result for anybody my guest today sarah alliston is very interesting she never realized that she was a pain in the ass difficult person then one day her boss sat her down and said to her that she was disrupting the office ruining the camaraderie destroying production levels as well as impeding her own professional advancement. Hmm. That was Sarah's wake-up call. She thought, "Uh uh-oh, something's got to change. So Sarah's now become an expert in how to deal with difficult people and has written a great book about it. And uh, it's got valuable information for all of us. Now, I'll be back with Sarah immediately. Immediately after this short break on the Voice America Business Channel.
0: You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com That's Bob at BobPritchard.com Now, back to the show.
1: Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. You know, over the last five years we've given you the insights into the lives of about 320, I think, of the world's most interesting people. What they do. And we try to find out what it is that makes them tick. You know, it's extremely difficult to create a successful business, and uh, we all need to receive advice and assistance from those entrepreneurs that have gone before us, that have achieved success and have overcome all the challenges that they face. The aim of this segment is to assist you to become more successful. Now, in business, I don't know about you, but we often have to deal with difficult people and most of us are not equipped to do this without all sorts of trauma and drama, and those sorts of situations do not get the best results for anyone. My guest, Sarah Alliston, never realized that she was one of those pain in the ass difficult people. Then one day, a boss pointed out to her that she was disrupting the office camaraderie and the production as well as impeding her own personal advancement. Now, that little lecture from the boss was her wake-up call. Now, I've always been, anybody who's listened to this program for the last six years or so, um, knows that I've always been a believer in the theory that the only way to change people is to change people. I've always taken the view that difficult people are cancerous, and the quicker you can cut them out, the better. However, Sarah's now become an expert in how to deal with difficult people. So it seems that we may be diametrically opposed in our views, but let's find out. Sarah may be able to teach us all some very valuable information. Now, Sarah's got a new book, Lessons Learned from Difficult, from a Difficult Person, How to Deal with People Like Us. So she's not afraid to put herself out there. Sarah, welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show, and you're being heard live around the world. Now, I, assu- I assume that you do not agree with my philosophy on difficult people, that is that get rid of them, and the sooner the better. So why why is it better to spend a lot of time, which after all is money, understanding a difficult employee or a, whoever they are, than it is to just throw their ass out the door? <laughs>
2: Well, in the long run, I think you do actually make money if you take the time to invest in them, if they have the skills you need, if they really can't do the job, well, never mind. But um, I was very lucky in that my organization invested 25 years in me, and most of that time I was pretty difficult, I think, or perceived as difficult by a lot of different people. But I was really good at what I did. And uh, so luckily they didn't toss me out the door. Um, as a as a, a business rule, I would I would say yes. I'm pretty diametrically opposed because I'd say the only way to change people is to change yourself. So that's how we would be different. <laughs> okay. Um,
1: during this period, before your boss gave you a little bit of a talking to, did you realize you're a difficult person, or you did you think that you just didn't fit in, or did you think that everybody else was wrong, or?
2: What was your attitude? I think um, I wondered why I didn't fit in, but I was good at my job. I got a raise every year. My performance reviews, I always was puzzled because whoever was supervising me would say, well, you know, you could work a little on your communication skills. And what that means is you're too abrupt, you're too abrasive, you ask too many questions, you challenge the leadership. I didn't know that's what it meant. I thought, well, let's see, I teach classes and communication skills. So I'm not sure what they mean. And I think once I said, can you be more concrete and specific? And the woman said, well, just, you know, the way you talk to people, which didn't mean a thing to me. So uh, I discovered later that even by asking for clarification, she perceived me as being difficult, Mm -hmm. because I was questioning her. And uh so, no, un, until uh, Denise said to me, you know, what you do is uh, really a problem. Initially, when she told me, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. So, um, then she, we, we agreed. We had a conversation, and I said, I honestly don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what I'm doing. And she said, well, the next time you do it, I'll tell you. Right. And she did. This is all described in the book. And I, I mean, I honestly had no idea. I don't think many of us are aware of our actions. We know what we're thinking. We know what we're feeling. We can tell if our body's uncomfortable. But our actions, we don't know. We don't, we're not aware of it. And mm-hmm. so she said, hey, what you're doing right now, it's not okay. And uh, I said, what am I doing? She said, well, you're lifting your books up. And I was having a little tantrum. I couldn't find something. And it was in a cubicle environment, and everybody else was hearing it and responding to it. It was the first time I remember anyone talking to me about energy. She said, you're ruining the energy. And I was like, I wonder what that means, you know, but, but. I said, okay. She was a new boss. She was from out of town. She was uh, very direct, and I really liked her. And she really liked uh, my skills in, in the training that I was doing. So <laughs> I was highly motivated to listen to her. And I scratched my hands and said, no, I'll stop, and I did. And then I went home and asked my husband about it and said, well, uh, do I do this? He said, oh, yeah, you always blow up, but we we'll get over it. So we're used to it. <laughs> but the, the real key for me was when I went to visit my mother, who was living in a retirement community, and she was a pretty unhappy woman. My husband, my father had died about five years before that, and she was not a happy camper living by herself. Yeah. And, uh, and I... I I witnessed her having a little mini tantrum right there. And I just, I remember she stomped out of the room in a rage about something with this look on her face. And I thought, well, no wonder I do this. And it's no wonder that I've always done it because it's what I grew up with. And I'm not blaming my mother, but I was kind of curious as to why nobody ever told me to stop. Yeah. And and the people that I was, my husband got used to it. He didn't, I mean, he never said, don't do that. He just said, Okay, well, if you're upset. I'll, you know, they keep <laughs> along with it somehow. Yeah, the so, fight, the fight's not worth it. <laughs> I think that was, and because I would, you know, two minutes later it would be over. I didn't like hold a grudge or something. Anyway, it was very interesting, and so I, that's when I was already teaching classes in working with volunteers and dealing with a difficult volunteer. And I said, I wonder if this would apply to people. So I started doing workshops on dealing with difficult people, and discovered that. Um, the idea that the difficult person has no clue what they're doing that was pretty new to most people it's a pretty right. most of us impute motivation to people which we well they're being manipulative they want me to do this they're just trying to um, put pull wool over my eyes or they're um, you name it I don't what what all the things would be in business or a customer who's just trying to rook me you know or a, a, a vendor who's just trying to make a buck here, he's not really trying to work with me, that kind of thing. We, we usually uh, define the behavior in terms of our emotional reaction. We're not really talking about a question that they ask or an activity, an action that they take. We say, well, he's rude, he's manipulative, he's whatever, or she. And, um, and that's really our reaction to what they're doing rather than what they're doing. So, when people are difficult, is Mm. it because
1: of their background? They've grown up in that environment, or in most cases, or is it simply because they're a natural born jerk? Is it because (laughs) they've got a chip on their shoulder, seeking attention, or got an inferiority complex, or do they just simply reject authority?
2: Well, all of the above. I mean, well, uh, those are those are. It's not that they are stepping out, planning to do those things. It's just that's how they end up responding to the world. Uh, I I don't worry about why they do it anymore because that's kind of beyond. I mean, it's not worth worrying about. They do it. Yeah. And uh, I I teach a, a theory of motivation. Dr. William Glasser founded reality therapy. He said. We act, we do things, we behave for five to meet five basic needs. Belonging, fun, freedom, a sense of um, uh, achievement or self-awareness, and then survival. And everything we do is designed to meet those five needs. And so it doesn't matter why they do it. They think it's going to work. It's worked in the past, or it's all they know how to do. So... If, so the you're, end of, if you're objectionable in, in the way you
1: operate at work, how yeah. does that fit in with the wanting to fit in theory?
2: Well, if you don't know how else to be. If no one said, by the way, when you use that tone of voice or you use that word, it alienates the rest of us. Right. Uh, you you just keep doing it because that's what you were taught. And you wonder why, uh, this is my experience, sort of wonder why other people seem to be closer or more friendly with each other or they invite someone else to lunch and they never ask you. My experience was that I had enough uh, colleagues in the field that, and uh, the first 10 years of my working for United Way, I ran a volunteer program at City Hall. And I I had lots of people there asking me to lunch. Nobody a United Way, because that's where I was going to staff meetings, whereas at City Hall, I was putting volunteers in offices, and they wanted them, Right. and and so it was a different relationship, but so I wasn't being ostracized, I just, I didn't understand why they didn't uh, respond to me, and well, I, had, I had one supervisor. She wasn't my supervisor, but she was at a supervisory level. She actually gave a headhunter my name because she thought I'd be happier somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I followed that process, but they didn't <laughs> hire me. So um, I had another thought, another answer to your um, – oh, for me, part of it was I grew up in New England in Boston.
0: Yeah.
2: And so I'm, a, I'm pretty direct, and I'm pretty open. I'm pretty honest. And I'm in Cincinnati, which is kind of the South, at least from Boston, it's the South, and everyone's terribly nice to each other. Yeah. So they wouldn't confront directly. And as I said, the woman who did finally say, hey, what you're doing isn't working, she wasn't from here either. Right. She was from Denver, and she was also someone who was honest and direct and, and wanted to keep, didn't want me to be doing what i was doing but want, and didn't want to fire me so that was her so are you saying that
1: <laughs> people who are obnoxious in the south are more likely to get away with it because people are
2: friendlier i don't know how people are <laughs> obnoxious in the south i know that women have a have a phrase that that i've heard and and so this is not like saying something out of school but in the south when they really don't like someone or they really Dis uh, displeased with someone, they'll just say, "Well, bless her heart," you know. <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever heard that or not. I have. <laughs> I have. Um, so I think they have their own uh, shorthand, and I just don't know it.
1: Yeah. Um, so if you're a difficult person working in a work environment, what does it feel like? You feel like you're the only one that's being honest and direct and whatever, or do you feel like?
2: wow, I am different than everybody else. Uh, I can only speak from my own experience, but I felt uh, I was curious as to why I was the only one that ever asked questions at staff meeting. Right. Um, And uh, so at one point I stopped asking questions, and my boss said, hey, you've got to keep asking questions. And I said, well, nobody else is asking, and I, it doesn't seem to be a positive thing. She said, you're the only one that will ask the scary questions. Yeah. You ask the brave questions. We need you to do that. And I said, well, are you giving me an order? Because I really don't want to do it. <laughs> so so that I wondered about that, and, of course, what I learned eventually was that if you really have a serious question, you wait until after the meeting, and then you go and ask it. You don't do it in front of everybody else. Mm, uh, that, that's interesting, because I... I-
1: I would have thought that's a sign of, of real confidence. Somebody who can sit there. I've have worked for a couple of mega billionaires that are hugely that are household names and seriously um, successful. And uh, you know, it takes a lot of guts to ask questions. You've got to have a pretty strong sense of self to um, sit up there and ask a question in front of a whole in front of a whole bunch of people because the automatic thing is to sort of feel like, oh, gee, um, I don't want to look like an idiot, you know?
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I think I probably looked like an idiot sometimes, but I also felt I had a legitimate question. I remember early on, maybe within the first five years of working there, uh, at a large divisional staff meeting, we just merged two departments, and we were trying to get to know each other. And I remember saying to the, the vice president, I'm a little confused. You said this. We were going to do this last month, and now you're saying we're going to do this. And that just seems like they're contradictory. And he smiled and said, "Well, you know, it's organizational." And someone next to me wrote wrote uh, wrote me a you note know, and said, "That means that's what the boss wants." You know, the, the, yeah. the large, the head boss. And but I didn't. I mean, everyone else had figured that out, sort of. So, <laughs> uh, so that maybe not have been the best question to ask. But I, I asked it I, anyway. Surprise! Nobody else asked it. I guess I thought, okay, this is the direction we're going. Oh, suddenly we're going in a different direction. Mm. So I think I have a I have a strong sense of self. I didn't have a uh, sense that I, I I didn't feel like people didn't like me or had want me around. That wasn't an issue. I just uh, I, I never got promoted, but I I really loved what I was doing. I did about every five years. Oh, maybe every Christmas I would sort of think, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I should look for something else. But no one else did what I was doing, which was teaching people how to work with volunteers. Right. And, and uh, I really loved doing it. And, and I was good at it. And, and it, we had a lot of customers asking for it. So I, I, th- I just thought, uh, something's weird. I just don't fit. I certainly didn't look like the other women who worked there. Um, and, you know, I just, well, I just thought I'm a square peg in a round hole, but I like what I'm doing, so I'll keep doing it. So I don't know how other difficult people feel. I do have a list at the back of the book that had a list of questions, like if you're angry all the time, or if you feel like the world's against you, or if, you've, if you notice that you're um, uh, annoyed with people 50% of the time, I've forgotten the whole list, but yeah. chances are you're a difficult person. Um, But that's not really the reason, that's not who I wrote the book for. I wrote the book for the people, you know, like you, who have to choose whether to boot them out the door or take some time and invest some time into helping them change their behavior. So did
1: you write this book to help people that are disruptive and difficult, to help others deal with it, or to justify your own self-confessed bad behavior? (laughs)
2: <laughs> what a fun question. Actually, the, my passion, where I start to get really emotional, is all those difficult people that no one will talk to. And I just do what they did to me was they would slip a uh, flyer of announcement of a workshop for dealing with difficult people. Periodically, it would show up in my mailbox at work. And since I, I did a newsletter of all the trainings that were coming to town for nonprofits, yeah. I figured that's what it was for. But I started getting it even after I was no longer doing the, that particular task. And and I realized, when I was writing the book, I began to realize that was the best that that individual could do. She couldn't come up and say, Sam, you're a difficult person. Right. But she put the, And so I'm writing it for the difficult people who are living in a world that will either boot them or avoid them instead of talking to them.
1: Okay. So... In my experience with difficult people, and I've worked with a few, um, <laughs> I'm sure you have. it always seemed to me that most difficult people either don't want to change because they believe in some way they're superior or they're unable to change. Mm. So, do you but, think that most difficult people want to change or they like themselves just fine the way they are?
2: Uh, The way I approach this one is, if you can define the behavior without putting a lot of emotion into it, without making it judgmental. So you can say, this is what you said, or this is the action that I saw you take. And then you can just define the impact of that behavior. So if they understand that this is what they did, and they say, oh, oops, that's right, I did say that, or I did do that, or oh, and the impact of that is we lose customers, we, we can't work as a team, everybody goes home angry, whatever the impact is. And the consequence of your continuing to do that is, and that could be getting fired or moved to a different position or, you know, who knows what it is. But if, if they say, see those three things and they don't change, it's because the consequence and the impact isn't as strong enough to them to, uh, as strong as, their desire to belong and to work as a member of a team and to have the job. Yeah. So it's not really a matter of not wanting to change or being able to change. It's whether they really understand what the impact and the consequence is. And usually, and this is just my guess, I think a lot of times people will say, you know, I feel so manipulated when you say that or you do that. I think you're manipulating me and I don't like it. Because we've learned to say, I feel this way when you do this. Mm. But what we usually say is, I feel that you are, and we put a judgment word on it. We don't say, when you ask that question, I'm uncomfortable. I, I, I don't understand why you're asking the question, or uh, it makes me confused as to why you're, why you're working here, or whatever. We don't say, I'm, I feel manipulated. Nobody wants to be told they're manipulating and it may, they may or may not be manipulating, but all they're really doing is asking a question or making a statement. Yeah, that... Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, yeah it does. I um, I feel that most people want to fit in. Yes, they
2: do. They want to belong.
1: They, they want to belong. Hang, mm-hmm. And so you would think that if they know that they're aggressive mm-hmm. and that nobody's inviting them out to lunch and nobody wants, you know, it, that... They would get the message. But it also, the the other thing that occurred to me is um, the average boss doesn't have time to be a psychologist, a psychiatrist and all those things and doesn't have time to pussyfoot around by being nice to, you know, being super nice to somebody and watching every single word you say in case you upset them. So you can't just say to them, look, you're a jerk. Your behavior is obnoxious. So you can't say that. You've got to tiptoe around things. Isn't that a pain in the ass to do if you're trying to run a business?
2: <laughs> well, it depends on whether the employee is worth keeping. You know, if you really think the guy's a jerk and he's a pain in the ass, then you shouldn't have hired him in the first place. That's true. But so, these uh, people,
1: seem, I, they seem to be able to put on put their best foot forward when it comes to an interview.
2: That's true. But the interview <laughs> usually isn't the only thing that you go with. No, that's true. Um, the reason I wrote the book, I mean, it was specifically for the difficult people to, hopefully, that they would have someone would have a conversation with them. But there, there's a system in the book that, that one can work through. It's not uh, laborious, but it does require some self-examination so that the, the the boss or whoever, it's not pussyfooting around to be polite. You know, I'm yeah. I'm not uh, in favor of I don't I don't understand all this. Annoyance with political correctness. It just feels like it's polite to say to someone, what you're doing doesn't work for me or what you're saying or the way you say it. Um, I, I did get fired once and they said it was the tone of voice that I used and I thought, I wonder what that means. I was in my early 30s. I had no clue. Part of, and this is true for me and it may also be true for other difficult people and that is, I was not aware of how people perceived me. Mm. They perceived me as confident, knowledgeable, um, able to stand in front of a group and talk, so I must know what I'm talking about. Therefore, if I asked a question or if I argued with them, I was threatening their position. Or that—that's some, some people felt okay. that way. And I didn't have a clue. I, I mean, I remember saying to someone... Uh, later in my life and just looking at this person and saying, you don't understand. I was this little kid inside. Everything I do or say or I didn't learn how to do that. This is genetic. My mother is like this. My sisters are like this. We, we're all teachers. Right. So, so, so just because I sound like I know what I'm doing doesn't mean I do. I'm just winging it like the rest of you. But I don't think people saw that. And uh, it's possible that someone you think is a jerk uh, is just being the way he's always been, and no one said stop it. Yeah, okay. So what was
1: one of the most surprising things you learned writing this book? What, what shocked you?
2: I think the numbers of times that people tried to tell me and I didn't get That's one of the things that really surprised me. I had a friend who said, you make me feel like this. And she and I were teaching a counseling theory that said people choose their feelings. Right. As part of their, they choose their behavior. And so I looked at her and said, how can you tell me I make you feel something? We're teaching people that they choose how they feel. I can't make you feel anything. And I really, we never really got past that. What she meant was she perceived me as Quicker and smarter, and that she didn't look as professional when we talked together. She had ten years' experience on me. She had all kinds of licenses I didn't have. I had the most respect for her, and it wasn't until I was writing the book that I realized what was really going on. And I was really, I'm really sorry because I can't go back and apologize. She's not here anymore, so right. that it's was one of the tough ones. It's interesting that.
1: Um People all have always have this feeling, it doesn't matter what you've achieved. And I was speaking to a couple of people who are talking about it over the weekend. A couple of people who are mega successful and very famous, and oh. they they were saying, you know, they, they always feel like any day now they're going to get caught out. You know, that, right. that they're living this life that really doesn't exist, and you know they're getting more credit than they deserve, and uh-huh. um, so. Is that a similar situation with difficult people? They're, they're, they're either more confident than the people they're dealing with or they're less confident.
2: Which One or the other. I, I, for me, um, I appear to be confident. Yeah. And um, I was dumped into some situations that I just said, oh, okay, I'll just do it and, wink, and, I, and I sort of guessed my way through it and um, figured it out. Uh, And I was successful. And I was so successful that I was a little bit skeptical. It's like, they must not have very high standards because it wasn't what I would call successful. So I can relate to what you're talking about. And I know I've heard, you know, really famous actors who've been interviewed who say, one of these days they're going to find out that I can't act.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, one of these people that I was talking to was in exactly that situation. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm an executive. I'm listening to this show. Mm -hmm. And I've got a difficult employee. And I'm thinking, okay, apart from going out and buying your book, um,
2: what do I do? How do I (laughs) – what's my first step? Your first step is to buy the book. No, but you're not going to buy the book. So you can email me and we can talk. Or the the next step, just in terms of you're listening to this show – Um, See if you can define what the person does that's so annoying to you. What does that person physically do? What actions are they taking? And what words are they saying? And can you actually write it down and say it without judging it, without putting emotional-laden, quote, drama words? It's very tricky because we get in the habit of, look, oh, there she goes again. She's being a whatever. Yeah. Um, You know, narcissist or... Or uh, what's the other one? Oh, passive-aggressive people love to show. So so that's what I would suggest. That would be the first step is to see if you can do that and then watch them and, and look at them through the lens of they don't know that that's what they're doing and that people don't like it. And if your perception is that they're doing it in order to annoy and make other people not like them, that's then... That's then another question. Sort of like, do, do you want to be successful? I mean, that's pretty easy. Do you want to succeed here or not? Right. So, how do you create real
1: consequences for the difficult person's actions? It, it, because are not they going to rebel against consequences? I, I'm not sure. I understand. Well, if you're going to if you're going to hold somebody that's difficult accountable. Mm-hmm. And find a way to make them Incredible. accountable. Aren't you just going to piss them off by sort of setting rules?
2: Well, um, but the whole—that's why you might want to buy the book—is that there's a process of identifying how to say it, and then having the conversation There's actually a model for the conversation in the book. And there are a number of dialogues in the book where people who have come to my workshop saying, "How do I fire this person?" or I never want to talk to my mother again or, you know, whatever it is. And then the consequential dialogue that they have after they've practiced talking and listening um, to that person. So so uh, it may piss them off, but the, the idea is that if you're in a neutral place yourself as the boss, as the supervisor, then they can be pissed off and it doesn't impact you. You can keep saying, yeah, and... You're doing this. There's a dialogue in the book where the uh, employee was always negative and sarcastic about the company. It was never a problem, but they're growing. So he's now in charge of all the new hires. And so his boss is saying to him, look, you can't be so negative and sarcastic. Don't you realize that the uh, new hires are all... Picking up on it, and it's not going to be good with our customers. Sure. And, and he and his employee argues back and forth. You know, I've always been like this. It's never been a problem before. It's just the way I am. It doesn't mean anything. And and the boss is basically saying, and you and you're doing it, and this is the impact it's having. Is that what you want? Do you want all of our new hires to be like this? Right. And eventually, the the employee says something like, "Oh, so you're going to fire me?" And he said. I don't want to fire you, but I don't want the new hires to be doing that. So who do you think is going to benefit the most from the book?
1: Is it difficult people or is it employers?
2: That's a good question. Um, I hope the employers, because by extension then the difficult people will. But I had a woman come up to me the other day with tears in her eyes and she said, you wrote that book for me. It was all about me and she obviously has been – Um, told that she's a difficult person, I was stunned, and I said, well, you couldn't have been as difficult as I am, and she said, oh, no, my family's already talked to me about it and everything. We didn't go into detail, but I I was touched and surprised by that, because a lot of my friends, before the book was published, they said, we can't wait for your book. we can't going to get it and send it to this cousin or this grandparent. or <laughs> no. I can't wait to give it to my difficult person. I said, no, you've got the wrong idea. <laughs> this is for all the members of the family or all the members of the staff to be able to work with and be with this person. It's not necessarily for the difficult person, although maybe difficult people will read it. Obviously, this woman had.
1: Hopefully. Hopefully. Sarah, thanks very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, you can learn more about Sarah Elliston in a book, Lessons Learned from a Difficult Person, her, how to deal with people like us by going to SarahElliston.com. That's S-A-R-A-H-E-L-L-I-S-T-O-N.com. Lessons learned from a difficult person, how to deal with people like us. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network after this short break.
0: From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to Bob at BobPritchard.com. That's Bob at BobPritchard.com. Now,
1: back to the show. Welcome back to Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, Absolutely No Bullshit Business Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show for entrepreneurs. And this week we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles where technology meets entertainment, and it's only five days before Christmas and Hanukkah. So, again, I want to wish everybody a fantastic holiday season and, of course, a sensational 2017. I think it's going to be a great year. I think um, when I was talking about Sarah Elliston's book, I think I said lessons learned from a difficult person. It's actually just... Lessons from a difficult person, Sarah Alliston. So um, get that. It could be very handy. Did you realize that cities are really built around cars and they're not built around people? And the numbers are really mind-blowing. Almost 31% of all urban land is dedicated to parking. And most cars are only utilizing 5 to 6% of that time, meaning that most of the time, cars are simply sitting there taking up space and a whole heap of it. Between 60 to 70% of major cities in the US are paved. So our cities have been designed for the car and mainly the parked car. Now, autonomous cars are coming much quicker than anybody thinks, and they may lead to human drivers becoming illegal in some cities, and instead of owning a car, you'll subscribe to a transportation system like, say, a Netflix. This will enable us to reinvent cities we live in so that they're designed for humans and not for cars. For people to give up cars, is going to have to be a um, mobility solution, For every scenario that exists, Um, for example, currently Lyft helps connect senior patients with rides to and from medical appointments, and they have a program for the elderly where they can book a car without having to download the app since many seniors don't have a smartphone. But many, 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 many situations still need to be addressed, such as um, mothers who need to travel and have a baby seat in the car. Now, it's also far more affordable for people not to own a vehicle. Using a shared driverless fleet vehicle, your cost compared with owning a car could be reduced by 80%. Cars are expensive to own and run. In two to three years, we're going to see a considerable number of autonomous vehicles. In a hybrid network, we both autonomous and human-driven vehicles are going to be necessary to meet all customer needs. And then as we move on, um, human drivers will be phased out. There'll likely be a subscription model similar to Netflix, where you'll have a mileage plan and multiple vehicles you can choose from. And if you're going on a family vacation, you may select the larger vehicle. that has got an entertainment system so the kids can be entertained. Um, if you want to ride to work and Do some work in the car, you may be in a business configured car, or you may be driving home after work, you can sit down, relax and have a drink with friends. And as autonomous cars become more and more like a room on wheels, new jobs will be created around the experience inside the vehicle and the service of the fleet. As new services are offered in autonomous vehicles, there will be a need for humans to run those services now it sounds impossible but human drivers could become illegal in just five to ten years some cities may even ban human drivers from operating for example you can imagine in los angeles and in new york city where there is massive congestion and huge density populations that um, only autonomous vehicles Can travel. There's a lot of cities in the world that are restricting the days that vehicles can drive. They may only be allowed to drive on odd days or even days. So taking human-driven cars off the road altogether is not that far-fetched. And transportation affects almost every area of our life. For example, um, real estate. If you don't live near a public transport, your real estate's going to be less expensive. If you live near public transport... Your um, real estate's more expensive. So doing away with vehicles means that transportation is accessible everywhere across the city. That could disperse real estate values. Areas will become beautified. Traffic will be reduced. The commute time becomes shorter and uh, increasing property values that are just a little bit out of the way at the moment. Driverless cars will actually help level the playing field because autonomous cars will help drive down the cost and help level the playing field for people who can't afford to own a car. For example, if you can't afford to own a car to take you to school and you have to take the bus, it takes twice as long, and that twice as long eats into your homework time and or your work time and puts you at a distinct disadvantage, And competition in this area is growing. There's a $2.15 trillion spent every year on car ownership, and that means competition is both positive and inevitable. General Motors is one of Lyft's biggest partners. They've invested $500 million, and it's currently planning to roll out its first self-driving car on the Lyft network. I remember only a couple of years ago when an investment club I belonged to discussed buying GoPro. I've changed the subject now. Um, discussed buying GoPro shares because they were the hottest toys around. Fortunately, we decided not to buy them. Now comes word that the struggling GoPro is cutting about 200 jobs, which represents about 15% of its workforce, as the company restructured its once fast-growing action camera business. GoPro will cut about 200 full-time positions, cancel open positions and shut down its entertainment division as part of the restructuring. The company expects to incur about a $24 million to a $33 million in restructuring card charges, mainly in the fourth quarter. Now, GoPro shares, as you probably know, have fallen from $80 a year ago to about $10 today. As I mentioned last week, um, Elon Musk's the most admired leader in technology, and uh, with 23% of people admiring him more than anyone else. But f- interesting, 57% of founders thought that the startup ecosystem was in a bubble, but more than half of them said they didn't expect it to pop anytime soon. 90% of founders say it's a great time to start a company. 72% say there'll be an increase in, a- in acquisitions next year. And 43% believe that the IPO market will improve. So while optimism is rampant, it might be encouraging risky decisions. It's going to be interesting to see. I personally think that 2017 will be a bonanza year for startups and innovative growth. All the signs to me seem to be very positive. Now, I invite you all to go to my website, which is bobpritchard.com, enrol for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read, and it'll keep you up to date with all the business news mm-hmm. that's important. Remember, you know, it, the more you know, the more you earn, the more successful you'll become. So 30 seconds a day isn't much time to read, and it's free. F-R-E-E, free, nada, cost nothing. Just go to my website, bobbridgeyard.com, enrol for the newsletter, and you'll receive it, and it's every day, so you won't miss anything. Remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're just taking up far too much space, so get out of the road. Let somebody that wants to succeed come past you, and it's easier and much more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Next week, I'll again be broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard where technology meets entertainment, and I hope you can join me again. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really
0: sucks.